0: Now, largely thanks to digital technology, the you know sort of monopoly of your own creation is really important to find, but we really haven't been trained by the education system that forms us to have the courage to really you know, go out and to be the random seeds in this homogenous environment, this environment that prefers homogeneity.
1: My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And I'm Will Mannon. I'm course director at Forte Academy, and this is Reshaping Education, where
0: we discuss the future of education, including online courses, boot camps, and how the internet is changing how we learn.
1: Hey, Reshaping Education listeners, this is a rebroadcast of one of the talks that was hosted at the Reshaping Education Summit earlier this year. This particular talk was led by Chris Messina, and we discuss how to treat your course like a product sign. I hope you enjoy. Uh, well, actually, with uh, talking about speaking about product hunt, it's actually yeah. product hunt launch day for us. Yeah, big yes. big milestone for us and the team. We've been grinding. We've been heads down for eight months. We wanted to pop our heads out, kind of celebrate that milestone today. And you've helped us tremendously with that. Um, you've uh, uh, So for those who that don't know, Chris is the number one hunter on Product Hunt, has been involved with the community for an incredibly long time and helped uh, help get the word out. And so if you're just stopping by now, uh, we've actually pinned the link to our Product Hunt launch post at the top of the chat. I uh, would love to love to get your support. It would mean a lot. Uh, that being said, Chris, tell, we, I, the audience would love to learn a little bit more about you. Why don't you share a little bit about your background before we get going in on today's discussion?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, it's it's interesting, I suppose, just because I've had such a strange, uh, maybe dynamic uh, career in, in Silicon Valley. Um, I came out here in 2004, um, essentially, you know, because I was looking for more weirdos. Um, you know, who were like me. They they were excited about the internet. They were excited about social technology. They loved design, and um, you know, it was just an opportunity, I guess, for me to to find my people. And I quickly got involved with the launch of Firefox because I believed that the web was going to be this super critical, important platform that needed to not have a gatekeeper like Microsoft uh, in in front of it. And um, that led me down to just this like crazy um, journey, I guess, getting into the open source world, the open source community, um, and. Starting, you know, companies and then working for big companies like Google and Uber, um, where I was on their developer platform team. But also, I was a UX designer, so I sort of spanned both of those roles. And then, um, you know, I, I I left big tech. You know, I ended up going through uh, Y Combinator uh, with a conversational AI startup, um, and then that sort of flamed out for me. And then, sort of went on a, a walkabout um, where I was giving talks around the world on technology and culture and design. And um, then, of course, landed back in the Bay Area um, just as the pandemic started. And so, um, yeah, uh, I guess for the last year, you know, being sheltered in place, I ended up just kind of turning a lot of the stuff that I've been doing, kind of for free, and just kind of as a way of supporting the community on Product Hunt, into something that I could do as a kind of consulting opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah that, that's amazing, and I think uh, it's it's been. An- year for education for sure and and just even the creator economy in that uh, i think with everybody having all this free time people look to hey how how can i uh, you know how can i upskill how can i you know i can't you know do the things i would normally do um and so they they turned online and, and i guess i i'm curious what you saw from your perspective and how you, how that kind of you know uh factored into your decision to start and your online education business.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe maybe there's some like useful, uh, like a useful trajectory or contour. Uh, contour is not the right word, but um, in terms of thinking about how to go about like deciding to do a course, um, part of it, I guess, for me, came to a place where I started using this platform called SuperPeer, which launched last March, and I knew the the founder. And I quickly got um, connected with him, and I ended up helping him launch on Product Hunt. And what that platform was, I mean, it was timed very well. It was really about providing one-on-one uh, consulting... Well, I, I shouldn't even say consulting calls. I would say one-on-one calls, which were scheduled and that you could charge for if you wanted to. Um, and so I quickly realized that since you know all the income that I'd had from speaking suddenly went away, this was an opportunity for me to essentially stay in, in the Bay Area um, and make my rent, et cetera, and. and um, and pursue that, and so I ended up kind of putting out there my availability, even though I'd never done this before, to help people understand the experiences that I'd had in in helping other people launch on product time, and how to go about that from like a marketing, from a strategy, from a product perspective. And over the course of last year, I ended up having around 300 calls. And you know, I find one one thing that's like maybe if I could go back and have a conversation with with a version of myself um, back then, you know, I didn't really do a lot of the Big funnel building, the big sort of marketing tasks, like all of those things that I, I hear a lot of people, you know, end up needing to do. Where it's like this kind of just slog of creating content and kind of getting the word out there. Like, granted, I also had the benefit of starting, you know, like 15 years ago in Silicon Valley, and so building that network and building that community um, early. But it's also, I guess, about just pursuing something that I was doing naturally, that I was interested in, um, and that people found an interest, uh, I guess, you know, in and. After doing so many of these calls, I realized that I was having a lot of the same conversations over and over again, that were very kind of preliminary. Um, They were valuable and useful for a lot of the people that were wanting to launch, but they were becoming, I think, less mm, dynamic for me. And so that's, I think, where I came to realize, like if I package this up in a course, then people can essentially get my insights on their own time without having to book a call with me, and then that can lead me to do more strategic or more interactive types of engagements. I mean, in fact, this is a good example of that, where you and I have worked together on your launch. We went through a lot of the basics, and you know, kind of gave you a lot of the, the outlines of what it takes uh, to do a successful launch. And now we're able to go and have a deeper conversation about you know what you're doing with virtually in this virtual event. So that's a lot more exciting to me than just having the same conversation about the basics over and over again.
1: Yeah. Incredible, and one of the things I think is really relevant to talk about, uh, Chris, is that you basically realized, like, hey, like I have this domain expertise, and and given you know all all that I've done in terms of networking and building a community, I have people who want to access that, uh, and so you decided that hey, there's a way to kind of turn this into a business and do this for a living. Uh, what would advice would you give to somebody who would kind of basically maybe has domain expertise but feels Weird about trying to monetize it, um, yeah, do, is, do you totally. feel like there was a stigma there um, first, yes,
0: personally, I can just attest to that. Uh, I think for most of my career, I've really not been excited about charging people money uh, for my time, and it's been a problem. Um, you know it's I say it's a problem because Primarily, if I if I take a step back and look at it from my current situation now, I realize that it was more about a relationship, a broken relationship that I had with money, and what I feared would be sort of this corrupting influence, where I'd be taking money, you know, from from people when I really just wanted to do this thing, you know, for free. Like, why can't I just give this to you? And I think that that dynamic is starting to shift and to change because that dysfunction, if you will. Actually, kind of has allowed many of the big tech platforms to make a ton of money off of the things that we do out of sort of just a a personal like interest. And yet clearly these advertising platforms in particular are able to monetize the attention that we bring to the stuff that we do and then put ads in front of people to access that content. And then some of us, at least who have given away a lot of our content for free, are not actually part of that value creation process. So it does feel like that's starting to shift. There's an awareness, especially I think from a younger generation that, look, I'm producing a lot of good stuff. And I'm taking my time with this. And I really need to be able to you know, pay the rent, buy food. And so that caloric exchange is actually okay. So the other way that I've, I've thought about this is you can still provide a lot of value for free. You can still give away a lot. In fact, you probably should. Um, what I think you're doing with a course or what you're doing with like. Paid for time, you know, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's group sessions or you know a cohort-based course, is you're providing a couple things. You're providing dedicated time where attention is um, synchronous, and I think in this day and age where you know all sorts of distractions are just a, a, a click or a phone swipe away, that's really important. The result of that is that you're creating a kind of bidirectional accountability loop where you're showing up, let's say, as, as, a, as a teacher or as the person who's providing the information, and then you have someone who is there on the other end who's receiving it. And so setting aside that time and being accountable to be there for that time, I think is, is critically important. Um, and so in some ways, it's also about giving yourself permission to, to show up and to dedicate your, your time and resources to that uh, endeavor, as opposed to just providing that, that time for free. And maybe the third is to demonstrate and to um really think about what is valuable, and again, I think this is where the product designer and me kind of like starts to to kick in and says you know during during these one on one sessions during these coaching calls during or in any of the content that I produce or the materials that I provide, how do I improve these as products over time so I'm whittling away the rough edges and I'm improving these things as a kind of evergreen you know resource or um you know asset that is also changing and adapting to the environment as the environment is also changing and evolving, right? So it's all kind of. If you think about it from that perspective, there's a lot more alignment than what I thought before. Where I think bringing money or charging into the equation made it more transactional and therefore extractive. And when I realized that it's you know you kind of have to like water the garden in order for things to grow, and you know whether you you know, think about money as, as water or as currency. Currency, of course, like that metaphor comes from you know a flow the flow of a river. so these 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 ideas are there already in nature. And just because we abstracted into money and because there's a lot of negative aspects of money, I don't think um, at least I feel like I'm in the process of of resolving and improving my relationship and my perception of what it means to take money and to optimize my time around uh, how people are helping to support the work that I'm already doing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's a few amazing points you made there, which is uh, one also is about just providing value for free and how the vast, vast majority of the content and value provide is, is free. And this is, uh, this is advice that we see across the board. Uh, all the best writers on Substack, all the best course creators, um, all you know your YouTubers, they all talk about like, hey, like most of the value I give away for free. And then I just charge for that one last 1%. Uh, and I think that's just so important because at the end of the day, like the only way that your audience is even going to build, you know, be willing to invest in you is if you've proven yourself as a domain expert and that you can provide value to them. And it's it's all this idea of like building trust. Uh, and yeah, then the actually, other
0: like, to, to build on that. Sorry, so hold, yeah. hold that second thought so we can get on that because yeah. you said a few things that I want to add a little bit more to. Um, sure. And I and I, I talk about this a lot with the folks, and I, probably even with you. Like uh, when you launch on Product Hunt, you know the the Product Hunt audience is so savvy. Like they're really looking for reasons not to check you out because there's such an explosion of products that are out there that are competing for their attention. So a lot of the work that I'm doing and coaching people on their launches is removing reasons to say no, reasons to like not click through, reasons to not say yes, reasons to I don't know, just be like oh, I don't have time for this right now. So Part of what you just said, I think, is so important. Which is, how do you put out there enough content, enough value, enough interaction, enough engagement? How do you demonstrate the way that you behave in a normal way, which probably or hopefully is similar to the way you, you behave one-on-one? That someone says, you know what, I really want to work with this person. And I would, I would say that there's probably, you know, whether the one percent or ten percent or some range in between there, that one to ten percent is really about personalization, customization, and relationship. And so if you do give away 90% of the value of what you're providing, I do think that there's a set of people who are highly motivated and interested in the type of you know, relationship with, with you and with your content and with understanding things from your perspective, that that's where charging for that access is what both sustains you and also is, I guess, where, where the real value exchange like happens. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and it's 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 part of giving it away for free, giving value for free, but also being I think, consistent and doing it for the long, long haul. You know, I think, you know, when you probably participating in the product on community and you became a hunter and you're putting out these products, you didn't know that this could eventually become your career who would possibly think that and you weren't charging for this at all you were just you were providing yeah. value and what you did was you showed up and you showed up every day for a long period of time and that's the second part of building trust i want to be-, be
0: clear though like because and and i'll support your point which is you have to show up and you got to do the work and you got to put in the reps however they didn't feel like reps to me and you'll hear that from you know i've, I've not been going to the gym during this pandemic and i feel very bad about it but um <laughs> You know, for people who go to the gym or for people who experience what I've what I've heard is described as the runner's high like running isn't really running to them the way that I perceive running like to me running looks like oh that looks horrible and awful but for those who get into that runner's high like it's it's unlike anything else from what I hear and they want to just you know get there on a regular basis I mean for me the satisfaction that I would get from you know one discovering a new product that no one else knew about was Highly gratifying to me. That meant that I was like living on the like the future edge of, of, of the future, um, and for some reason that's that's valuable to me. Then the the value that I got from helping people by getting their products out there to the world and by helping them tell their story that was gratifying in a different way and satisfying. And then just the act- activity of being involved in the product community also was something that I I enjoyed and found other people who are excited and interested in the same things. So. And there's probably more value, but those three things brought together meant that if I went back in time, and I was like, Oh, someday, I'm going to be charging for advice on how to do this. And it's like, Oh, it's a slog. And you've got to do it every day. And you know, it's tiring and exhausting. That isn't why I was doing it. So finding that thing where there's that alignment and that internal, you know, your your compass is already set in that direction is so important. And that requires you to get to this place of I don't know if it's like self knowledge or self awareness or just sort of like, you know, as they say, following your bliss. But, and I, I know like it's going to sound totally, you know, insane to probably a lot of people thinking about this or listening to this that hunting products on product hunt is like following my bliss. But in a way, it is. And so the fact that I found that meant that over the past six or seven years, six or seven years, think about that. Think about how long I've been like posting products. I've launched over 2,800 products, right? It's, it's a lot. But none of it felt like like work because of those three things that i found before. So i guess what i'm saying is if you can find those things and, and this is i don't i don't i'm not trying to suggest that this is a universal truth but given what you're saying about the amount of effort and work and commitment and showing up that needs to be done you really do have to find something where your glide path is already set where you're going with the grain of your interest and in your personality and you do this work anyways because i was doing it anyways. Like for free and without recognition, and um, I think that's just that's a really important element to this because I do think, and I've heard a lot, and it is true that sometimes it is a slog, but the slog isn't the thing that you're seeking, right? It isn't the fa- the fact that like you have to put in thousands of reps, you know, to get to some place where people like care about what you're doing. It's like you would put in ten thousand reps without even noticing it, and that's the thing that ideally you could then share and then you know sell or monetize or teach other people how to do because you're going to do it anyways.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, you know, we talked a lot about education and higher ed today. And I actually think that like our system doesn't really prepare us for these types of careers or paths. Oh, I mean, why would they? I mean, they're trying to mass produce uh, professionals for all these repeatable steps. But when it comes to being a creator, right, when it comes to being any sort of entrepreneur, the thing people don't run. You actually need to be really niche. And you need to do mm. things that most people aren't doing. Whereas with universities, they're trying to get everybody like, Hey, oh, you wanna be a software engineer? We're gonna group you with like, you know, a thousand other people who want to be software engineers and we'll train you how to do that. And and it's one of the things I've realized. And you know, I I was a software engineer at Facebook and I left to do it. And my parents thought I was crazy. But again, mm. I just knew that I was. It wasn't what I was deeply passionate about. And I knew that w- what I was passionate about was building products. And I loved education. Bringing those two things together was my unfair advantage. Because mm-hmm. I was going to naturally, like you said, it wasn't a slog. I just find myself always thinking about it and working about it, but it never feels like work. It's my blip. Mm-hmm. and And when you do this, what happens is you naturally have this unfair advantage where anybody in the uh, else in the industry, you're going to work harder, and you're going to show up every day because you want to. And you're naturally just going to become the best at this. And that's, that's what I think the one big takeaway that I'm seeing this is like, find your niche and once you do can do that, that you, you can make anything. and so these personal monopolies. And it's just, when it comes to, uh, you know, higher education, it's just, you're not trained to do this, you're not trained to become a creator, but mm-hmm. that's exactly what it entails to some degree.
0: I think, so again, I want to, I guess, unpack that a little bit because there, one, I I agree with you, but two, it's important to understand, I think, how we got to be this way. You know, as you said, the industrial education system was designed in a time where we needed more people who were similar and can fill slots in industry, right? The whole sort of, I guess, intention or thrust of the industrial revolution was to create repeatable units at scale. You know, it was the 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 Model T, you know, and you can get any color you wanted as long as it was black. And that repeatability was the nature of commerce and, and commercial activity, you know, for the last century. Now, largely thanks to digital technology, we are in a space and a context where that personalization, that personal expressiveness, the, you know, sort of monopoly of your own creation um, is really important to find. But we really haven't been trained by the education system that forms us to have the courage uh, and and the will to really go out and to be the random seeds in this homogenous environment, this environment that prefers homogeneity. Um, And so I think it's really, really important to kind of do some of that self work and to become a lot more self aware and like introspective and ask some of the tough questions, um, but to also recognize that you're in a broader cultural context. That has shaped us to really resist and to reject, um, you know, diversity and difference. Uh, difference, I guess. Um, we're finally getting to a place, thanks to I think the internet and thanks to digital technology and thanks to sort of evolving norms and culture, where deviation is finally able to be supported at a broader level in a more integrated way across lots of different groups of people and contexts than was necessary in the lead up to this um, economic era. So, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is like, and I don't know if you're probably a few years younger than me, but nonetheless, like um, when I think about like my parents' generation, the things that you and I are talking about would be terrifying to them because they were taught that if you did break from the norm, then you would not be able to survive. Because survival was found in coherence to group norms. And that's no longer the case when anybody can have a conversation with anybody in any part of the world and can find their tribe, find their community, find their audience, find their, find people who are willing to support them or to pay them or to compensate them for their creativity, for their genius, for their uniqueness. And we're finally getting to that point. I mean, I just like, I think about my experience in high school and how much I, you know, I was kind of shunned and like an outcast. And to find myself in this place now, I mean, back then, I never would have thought that I would have even survived uh, because the culture was so against um, divergence
1: yeah and and it's that I mean i'm I'm totally with you as well. It's just this idea of you know we're we're taught to kind of conform growing up and and it's when when you actually get out in the real world, you realize the people who don't conform are the ones who really make a name for themselves. Uh, and kind of going on this this kind of like train of thought, one of the things that we're kind of, I mean, the last 10 years I feel like really has been this uh, the decade of creators. Uh, this this creator economy, which is what people have been calling it. But the word that I'd really use to describe the creator economy is is democratization. And it's this idea of like, hey, it doesn't matter who you are or what background you're from, if you're really good at what you do, you can put that on, on the web and so before, if you really wanted to be a big like actor and musician, you needed to be in Hollywood, you needed to have the right connections, and you would make it that way. Uh, now you can start a YouTube channel, and you can show people what you do. And believe it or not, that is how some of our biggest stars of our era have gotten their start. Justin Bieber was a YouTuber, Billie mm-hmm. Eilish was a YouTuber. And it's it's amazing to see that expand not just in in just entertainment. We're we're seeing this happen for education, which I'm finally thrilled about because primarily the people we've been learning from are the people who are in public schools or college professors, and a lot of them, you know, they're great academics, but they're great and researchers. But a lot of them are there not to teach; they're teaching as a part of their job description, as a requirement to get funding for what they'd rather be doing. And so we're seeing these online teachers emerge, coaches like yourself. And they're doing it because they have domain expertise, and they love teaching. And guess what? These, Because of this reason, they're actually better teachers, and they're driving better out students and clients than traditional universities have, have been. And so you're kind of seeing the emergence of these, obviously, you know, coaches, you know, through super peer, uh, these cohort based courses, these course creators, and and obviously on deck is, is doing some cool stuff here as well. Um, I mean, what do you see as kind of, um, the creator economy, it's biggest strength and what, what the future for it is.
0: You know, I, so yeah, to unpack uh, again, like, couple of things that you, you pointed out. Like the the democratization piece, I think, is, is pretty interesting. Um in the sense that now anybody who has, I guess, you know, access to some degree, anybody who has technology, anybody who has, you know, a sense of creativity or a sense of taste, you know, can you know start to produce things that are maybe maybe what I'm thinking about is like sort of self-resonance. Um and by that I mean like a little bit of like self-validation. So again it took me a long time to get to the place where people will seek me out for my advice on launching a product hunt. Again, it wasn't really an intention. It was just a thing that I was doing on my own. It's sort of like, I guess, in, in a way, metaphorically, like, you know, marching to the beat of your own drummer, and then realizing, you know, because you decided to put the, the, the way that you marched to the beat of your own drummer on TikTok, eventually, you create a whole new dance genre that people are you know, imitating or something, right? But like, before that, people were just like, Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a weird guy doing that weird thing that he does. Um, and so I, I do think that there's an interesting dynamic where, depending on where you are in the culture, or where you are in the mastery of your own skills, or the things that you love to do, or, or if there's a medium or a platform, I mean, it's... Um, I guess what I'm trying to think about is the, the, the nature and the relationship between mediums, and opportunities, and emergent mediums, and how creators can sort of break out. Because the example you gave of YouTube You know, took many, many years. You know, one for YouTube to become a household name, and two for those creators to you know grow up um, as you know stars, right? And so, in a similar way, what are the emerging mediums that are available now that create space and room for people to really master those those forms? You know, the, the the pace at which we're inventing and evolving mediums is incredible. So, to try to make this a little more concrete. You know, I see a parallel between like, you know, what Billie Eilish might have done, like on TikTok, and what I'm doing on Product time. Like, I don't, you know, post songs, but I post products, and so I have gotten quite good, you know, at doing that, just because I do a lot of it. In a similar way, there is obviously influencers that are being created now, and I don't want to use the word. Oh, let's call them creators. There are creators who are showing up on Clubhouse or on Twitter Spaces or in other social audio contexts and are really great hosts. And there's going to be some amazing, you know, they they may go on to like Saturday Live and other types of institutions that are well known and have broader distribution because they started in those contexts. And so, if you're someone who loves to talk about a topic, loves to bring people together and host those conversations, you know, those mediums are ripe for sort of establishing a beachhead and creating a new audience, right? Like, it's not enough to go to YouTube where there's, you know, so many people and so much competition and there's so much optimization now. Uh, you know as someone who's, who's just getting started out on youtube because i've never really done video before i know i'm not going to like grow the type of audience that i have let's say on on twitter because i'm starting so late in the game so that's another thing i think to think about in terms of what mediums are best suited for the type of teaching that you want to do and then how can you hone that craft over time um, i want to go back to what you were saying though about creators at about maybe i don't know if it's like what's missing or what's new or what's an opportunity space um, i think community and relationships are really essential. Um, you know, I can say that having recently gone through the On Deck Course Creators cohort um, and just being a member um, uh, or a fellow within the On Deck community generally, that their design of community is quite different than a lot of other experiences that I've had. I would say, Prodigy from very early on, Ryan Hoover did a great job of establishing the norms and the behaviors and the positivity that was part of Product You know, it's it's very um, I don't know, like, if you're not a maker of products, it may be hard to really appreciate how much anxiety and fear and stress and doubt makers and, and people who build products have over putting something out there in the world and getting people to use it. You know, And the fact that people go on Product Hunt every day to talk about products, it can become a very negative place. And instead, I think Ryan did a great job of establishing a set of parameters, way before a lot of these other platforms realized that positivity was important, um, that created a space that was much safer to launch and talk about products um, that respected the contributions of the creators themselves. So that's really important. And I think whether you're designing courses or building courses, let let me say something about products. I don't believe that products are like products used to be. Like again, in the industrial era, it's important to be aware of how these things shift and change over time. To me, a product, a good product, is the consequence of having healthy relationships with an audience or a community. In other words, if you're in a healthy bi directional conversation with an audience, products are the result of the insights that you gain by being an active listener and understanding what your audience needs right? They are artifacts after the fact, because it takes so long to build a product, right? Like you've been v- building virtually for, for how long, you know, and
1: Two ahead. and a half yes. years. <laughs> okay. So you've been
0: building it for two and a half years. This is your fourth launch on product time, right? Yep. And I got to imagine that one of the reasons why you've launched on product time four times is because the product continues to evolve based on, you know, one, you technology stack underneath, based on two, your understanding of the problem space, three, based on actually having people and customers come through and use the product and try to build courses, and four, having actual students come through and give you feedback. And so you're in this almost like biodynamic relationship with a set of people, you're observing what they're doing, you're listening to the words they say, you're watching their behavior, and you're evolving the product to meet their needs. But you're already working on and have a roadmap. For the next set of things you're going to build and do. So it's not like a product, you know, like in the old days when you'd like produce something as, um, you know, an artifact that would be updated every six months or 12 months, like a CD or something that goes out and it's like, oh, here's the new version of Adobe Lightroom, for example. Now you've got to be in constant evolution. You've got to be constantly evolving how you're working, how you're talking, how you're sharing what you're doing. And I would point to, and I guess I'll use this example because I think it's relevant for course creators. I've been watching how Twitter has drastically changed, you know, one, their cadence of launches, and two, how much they build in public. The fact that they're talking about Twitter spaces on Twitter spaces and they're actively engaged in the community is a level of access and transparency and therefore insight that I've never seen like the team at Twitter do before. It's really remarkable. And you contrast that with, let's say, Apple. That tends to be very secretive, and very insular, and very private about the way that they build and evolve products. And I'm just I'm very curious to see how that shakes out over time. You know, I would say that my relationship with Twitter has only deepened as a result of having more access to people within the organization who are talking about their work, talking about their struggles, talking about their design decisions, and helping me to understand the various constraints that they're working within. And I can imagine that course creators could use the same techniques and practices to constantly co-evolve their products with the students themselves. And not only that, but like when I talk about this community, right? You got to think that there are people who have gone through the course and can give you feedback on the course itself. But what's also interesting is to bring new students into a context where there are former students and to then have them learn from each other and say, okay, this part gets a little tricky and here are some resources that I found, or, you know, this is going to be difficult no matter what. And so, therefore, you just got to go through it. Or, um, you know, why don't we have a one-on-one sort of separately, and I'll I'll guide you in this in this practice or something. Just that's, I think, a way of thinking about like the 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 long term, you know, building of, of of a customer community. Or uh, I guess you know, I was I was hearing this. Uh, I listened to an interview, a podcast um, with at Reckless on Twitter, and Michael Seibel from YC, and he made a, a kind of astute. Observation, which is that people who go through Y Combinator, the accelerator, use the term alumni to describe themselves, which is very rare relative to other accelerators. And you kind of want to think about that, like what does it mean to have a relationship with your your course-taking alumni? What does it mean to bring them back in to then support other folks who are new to the material and are coming into that? And then how do you continue to show and demonstrate how you're one treating alumni, and then also thinking about the current cohort. And you know, giving them a great experience to me—that's all the elements of modern product design, living you know in the digital realm.
1: What an amazing thing to bring up! Uh, I you know, I think you nailed it. I, I think YC's done something really terrific when it comes to their community design because it is one of the few communities that yes, they you know, as as a YC alumni myself, uh, I will refer to myself as an alumni. But also, if you look on Twitter and you look at all these different YC founders they find a sense of identity within within their YC relationship by putting it in their bio you'll always see like YC yep. summer 20 YC winter yep. 21 uh, people love to show that off because you know YC's built this brand this community brand and people are proud to be a part of it. ODF and, and has I too, think,
0: right? So yeah.
1: Go yeah. Ahead. And and it's, it's it's going to show that like I think there's something new happening here. Like cohort-based courses, I think is this just big innovation. A lot of people are talking about it. Is this idea is it's learning online, but it's learning online with a group of people who are at the same stage as you. So this this idea of, I think generally, like we've never seen kind of like camaraderie like you know, like YC before besides colleges, like people are like, especially I went to a Big 10 school, and people are diehard fans of these Big yeah. 10 schools, and they have this identity. And, you know, why is that? It's I mean, a part of it is obviously like, they, they enjoy the education, but so much more of it is this community of peers that they met, and build friendships with, and they were at the same stage and they went for the duration of these four years, they had the same purpose. And the thing is, people graduate college, and this disappears overnight. And it's really hard to find this again in the real world. And for me, I didn't find it again until I got to YC. The first day of YC, I went to the first remote batch last summer. And so even though it was remote from that very first day, I was like, Oh my god, this is just like college. Because it's it's again, it's a three month program. That being said, I'm surrounded with a community peers who are at the same stage as me for the duration of this program, and we have a shared mission. And something about how that shared mission brings people together, this commonality. It's like we have this shared trauma, shared struggle that people in our ordinarily real life couldn't, couldn't really uh, empathize with. So it's, it's rare to find, as a founder, other people who are struggling with this stuff to have people to empathize with. And that's what is the magic of cohort based courses is you are able to find these niche communities in an internet setting. And we also talked about this earlier in the day. The internet is enabling marketplaces for the most niche topics that would never, these communities would never form in person. But because of the vastness and the connectivity of the internet, there are communities being formed around it. And I think these, you know, like building a second brain, a, a, a course literally on productivity and note taking software, there's a math turns out. In percentage numbers, that may be a low number of people who are interested in it, but absolute numbers, it's huge. And and the best cohort-based courses, you're not just selling the mentorship and coaching, you're selling the community, this curated community. And people love being part of that. And the best courses really do amazing when it comes to their community design, such that students they come back as alumni they identify se- those, themselves with these courses i know ship 30 for 30 uh people yep. put like the ship little uh uh emoji in their twitter bio mm-hmm. and other and a lot of these you know these alumni they'll come back they'll be mentors they'll be affiliates and so you're you're you've nailed it there's you know with these with these course with these courses the design and the community is everything
0: yeah so so to build on this and I think this is like so important to understanding, you know, one the job to be done of a course, and also like the job to be done of these cohorts, because, you know, I guess I would, I would sort of bring out two things. You know, one is just this base human desire for people to belong, and what the internet does is it uh, disperses or or creates a dispersion of where belonging can happen across. You know, it's it's sort of like um it's like a, a mist of just of. of of sort of acceptance and belonging across like the entire populace of the world that eventually you will find a place to, you know, beat up into dewdrops um, with other people who are, you know, of, of like mind or interest or, or seeking a similar challenge, which brings me to the other point, which uh, about the alumni affiliation piece, which is that when you do struggle and overcome adversity together with another group of people, and you can sort of look over to your right shoulder and your left shoulder, and you can see people who are in the same, as you said, like moment as you, going through the same educational experience as you, that does forge and create a kind of bond and a kind of awareness and a kind of empathy and a kind of seeing yourself in someone else that I think has been really hard to find in the, I would say, in the the explosion of social media that's happened in, in the last 15 years, where it was largely just about getting people onto the internet and using social media. Right? Like when I think back to like the early days of you know, Twitter and even Facebook and platforms like that, it was just growth at all costs um, and scale. And it was like, we don't really care what you do when you get here, just get on the platform and start using it and grow, grow, grow. Now that we're here, we have realized that we've sort of formed, I don't know, if I think about my LinkedIn connections, like it's a lot of people but I really don't have strong connections with nor have I gone through any kind of adverse experiences with many of the people that I've added recently. Like if the most challenging thing that I've ever done with a person is click accept, you know, invite on LinkedIn, that's not a very powerful bot. Whereas if you go through a cohort based course, and whether it's, you know, ship 30 for 30, or whether it's, you know, building a second brain, or whether it's learning to cook, you know, Thai food, or who knows, right? The fact that you've challenged adversary, adversity, and you've seen something in yourself change, and there are other people who have gone through a similar change. You now instantly have a conversation you can always have with that person about how they're doing with that thing that you decided that you wanted to pursue. I, I would also add to, to, to this again, sort of to think about the opportunity space. When uh, Tiago sort of you know started working on the second brain you know project for himself, right, and started to share what he was doing, that comes from. Two things. One is that self-awareness of a lack or a limitation or a frustration or something that's not working for you in your life and being able to recognize it, not respond with shame, but instead to kind of respond with courage and perseverance to say, I don't, I don't like how this part is going and I think I can do something about it. And if there's not an existing course or practice or set of answers or solutions to go about doing the work of discovering the path. To get there and especially I think a lot of people are starting to build in public because they're having this moment of, of realizing that they can be cur- like courageous they can realize a limitation or lack within themselves but it's not definitional. It's not saying I am this it's I am experiencing this experience of myself and I believe that I can change it and you start going about changing it and that can be a hugely powerful way of sort of setting the foundation of a course. Because then you have the authority to speak from personal experience and overcoming a challenge that other people may eventually realize that they have as well. And so I think you know, building a second brain is gonna be something that, you know, I can imagine like grade school kids are gonna start doing in five to ten years because it becomes so obvious that when you live in a world of information abundance, making sense of and drawing connections between all the things that you've encountered is gonna be an essential primary skill. It's not just a matter of getting handouts, you know, that, you know, are sent home by your teacher or something and going through like mathematical assignments. It's what was the resource or YouTube video or blog post or whatever it is that you, you know, read or listened to or saw that gave you the insight to understand this thing that previously was mysterious to you? And how do you store and capture that? And then how can you play it back for other people to go through a similar learning journey? And all that to me comes back to having that sort of self-awareness, that self-knowledge, that self-mastery. To be like, oh, I just learned something. Like, how do I call this out? How do I capture this? How do I then put this into a broader context that then gives other people a little bit of a shortcut, you know, just sort of bushwhack through the the, the the jungle, like more effectively to the path that I've already carved.
1: Yeah. And, and Chris, uh, maybe switching gears a little bit, but the one, yeah. one of the, uh, things that really excites me about these cohort-based courses is this kind of fundamental shift we're seeing in education where it's now becoming less as in at the start of your career, you learn everything we need and you assume that, hey, this is four years of education for the entirety of your career. Now it's becoming more iterative where it's this idea yeah. of like, hey, maybe you you get this foundational education, but throughout your career, because the internet is creating you know disruption and things, Industries are changing so fast, you need to upskill, you need to reskill. Again, adding kind of the product designer lens, it's this idea of like, hey, you get feedback. And and the thing is, like, your role is going to continually change. And, you know, it might come to a point where you want to transition careers or you go from a junior engineer to senior engineer. And then one day you want to go from IC to manager. What what these core based courses do is they're very, lightweight, rapid reskilling programs that anywhere from six weeks to six months allow you to pick up the right skills to basically move up in, in your career and get that personal and professional growth. And And it's really exciting for me as somebody who's taken so many, build a se- building a second brain, is unlike colleges where you're getting this education years before you even really need it, and mm-hmm. a lot of it probably fades, and so it doesn't actually serve you. These course courses, they're deliver- education delivered at the right time. And so what's happening is, I, I go to one of these courses, and I learn maybe through Ship 30, to 30 for 30 earlier this week. Well, guess what? I'm writing a Twitter thread later this week to promote this summit. Guess what? I can employ these techniques. And I love that, hey, you're this iterative model where you learn as you go. And because you're applying it, more of it is sticking and more of it is being transformational. Maybe a little bit of a tangent, but something I wanted to throw in the comments. No,
0: I, actually, I like. I think... One, you're absolutely right, um, and I think it's really important to again, like a lot of our conversation, because to me this is grounded in product design, has to come from being aware of the environment and the context, and identifying the reasons why some things are the way that they are, and then making decisions to deviate or break from why they, you know, whether they should continue to be the way that they've been. And what occurred to me as you were speaking was was a couple things. One is we front-loaded the early part of someone's life with education, so they could go out and be sort of meaningful members of society and to contribute to again the industrial economy. But the industrial economy still required a lot of manual labor skills. We've now moved a lot of those, you know, practices, needs. Uh, I don't know, rote kind of repeatability into computers. Computers are really good at repeating things over and over again and not being creative. That's the whole you know, thing of, of artificial intelligence. And the problems with it is that it's designed to respond based on past performance and based on past training, as opposed to being creative and novel and expressive and generative. So given that, it only makes sense that we take what was this compressed you know, zip file of, kind of knowledge accrual in the beginning part of your life and spread it over the entirety of your life. And the reason why this is important is because I personally have started to think of myself as a product which I am designing. And so, again, going back to what I was saying about before, where a product has to continually evolve and update itself. I mean, again, it's a lot more software than hardware. I now have to gain more skills, more capabilities, more functionality like to respond to the environment that I find myself in. I have to be a product that is fit for purpose, which is the broader context that I exist in. And so having a product that is designed once sort of in this waterfall method in college, and then dropped out into the environment, and then doesn't evolve for the rest of one's life, obviously doesn't make sense and doesn't work. So by breaking up education into smaller, more digestible units that are applicable to your lived experience in the moment, as you said, you're you know going through adversity, you're overcoming that adversity in a social context, you're seeing other people able to do it, which means you could probably do it. And then you're applying it to your real life and to your your own subjective personal challenges. And ideally, you're seeing and getting feedback, thanks to the internet, about what things are working and what are not, not based on some tautological, that's not even a word, is it a word? Tautology? I don't know. Like, whether something is absolutely true or subjectively true, or based on what a teacher evaluates you as having, like, you know, a teacher gives you an A, what does that mean? Let's say a teacher gives you an A, but they have really, really bad... Uh, Twitter thread grading abilities, right? So they're like, oh, this Twitter thread is so boring. There's so many GIFs, all these images, blah, blah, blah. And yet you put it out on Twitter, and you get like a 1000 retweets. And you're like, wait, I just got like a massive A++ in the context and the domain where it actually makes sense. This teacher has no relevance whatsoever with the medium or the environment in which ultimately, it makes a difference. So The separation, as you pointed out, of education and the educational experience from the domain in which you actually practice these things is a major failing of the design of education. But education was centralized, again, as a result of historical context and and necessity, as opposed to an intentional design that would have resulted in better educational outcomes or societal outcomes by dispersing educational opportunities to everybody wherever they happen to be in the context or environment in which they're going to apply the skills that they've learned. So, and, I completely agree.
1: Yeah, and and uh, listeners, I apologize if we're getting too meta-philosophical, <laughs> but I want to go even one layer deeper, which is this idea of then if you if you yourself are kind of the software that's continually iterating, right? Your your brain is essentially software, and every course and book you read, any material you consume is is a software upgrade, essentially. No, uh, I mean, we one have of the things but you have to keep investing in it. Exactly. And and so actually, what's interesting is that, you know, with the universities and colleges, one of the things they really kind of emphasize is that experience, the their their professors and faculty have. But the problem is that experience doesn't matter when it's outdated medium, like Chris was talking about. So it's, it's this idea of like, a, a lot of our teachers of the future aren't people who spend decades and decades, like learning on a specific topic, because maybe they're teaching you how to use a platform or a medium that has only existed for like, uh, like, like a, a few years. months, maybe a few years, right? Like, so that's yeah, the thing is right. like, you can't, you can't learn to be a, a creator in school because guess what? It, as a career path, it just didn't exist 10 years ago. So who do well, you the, learn The from?
0: pressures and like the the feedback loops and the way to receive feedback and the way to respond to it and the way to be in, again, that, that dynamic relationship and conversation with an audience, with a public, I think is so important. It requires that more of us become like artists in a way. I just, I finally went back to uh, MoMA. Um, you know, which of course has been closed for last year. And the way in which artists, you know one have something to say and also have a, a public and then also sort of a group of you know fellow artists like around them, I think is is important to 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 recognize and to see because artists, although in the in their in their time in their era, they're often seen as being you know weird or divergent. again, like it's exactly the things that I was describing before. Now there's a need to embrace a lot of the the practices and ways of thinking and the sort of perpendicular approaches that they would employ in order to give us a better lens on our own selves and our our own limitations or whatever's going on so yes i agree
1: yeah no 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 it's 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 cool to see see it unfold it's um you know and i think this is really this should be really inspiring for somebody who uh, for somebody who's in the audience who's an aspiring creator. And, and even, even you, Chris, I, I think you were talking about before where you said like, Hey, like, I'm late in the game with YouTube. But the interesting thing is that because of trends, Right, there will always be new big YouTubers. There will always be new creators, and these mediums will never get saturated because, hey, guess what? Co- you know, these new concepts and tr- trends are emerging, and you can you can build a personal monopoly there. So when it comes to hey, a new platform just launched, right? When TikTok, that's the thing is like TikTok launched just you know a few years ago and people really started to figure out the TikTok algorithm and they started teaching TikTok on YouTube and we had mm-hmm. these these creators rise because hey there's nobody else on YouTube who re- has really figured it out and 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 one of my favorite creators you know I knew him just 2 years ago and he was he was teaching credit cards how to use credit cards to build points mm-hmm. and travel for free well guess what bitcoin's blown up and just crypto cl- than it did, you know, in the last year or so, he he pivoted from talking about credit cards mm-hmm. to crypto, went from mm-hmm. having 10,000 subscribers to nearly over, over a million now, wow. right? And it, mm-hmm. in just such a short period of time. So it's this idea of like, may seem, you know, it's too late to get started, but it never is. If you're focusing on the trends and what's latest and leveraging your unfair advantage, because everybody has their unfair advantage.
0: Well, it is also but I guess I want to like add to that because it's not always about surfing the latest trends, and and again, like that in and of itself, tracking and following things can be super overwhelming and just stressful. You know, I think it is more about thinking about your own language, your own way of making meaning, and how you can improve your ability to socialize what you do over time. I think that that's actually just as important because maybe you know this guy was like big into like you know credit card points and things like that, and then pivoted and sort of mm-hmm. rode that wave it's really hard to predict the market and to you know, predict the future. right? Like I'm sure there's plenty of people who pivoted towards things that did not turn out to be very relevant, and they did not grow a very big following. And yet, that to me is... And I guess maybe that speaks to why you should be very careful about how trendy or trend following you need to be because knowing which things to you know, pursue um, is... I don't want to say a fool's errand, but it's more important to, I guess, maybe think about and share and socialize your learning process. And how you came to the conclusion that something is worth following and why, and then how you're using it. I mean, I guess you know, the, the best example that I want to offer is really what I did with the hashtag in 2007. Right? Like, there, there was a time where there was no hashtag. There were no hashtags. No one was using them. They didn't exist. You know, we had a dollar sign in front of numbers and those became dollars, but putting a pound symbol in front of words didn't make them anything different. It was a typo. And so uh, I realized that there was this need on Twitter in particular and social media in general to provide a kind of way of symbolizing that a word or a phrase in a you know 140 characters was an essential part of what you were talking about, and that you needed to create essentially tokens as a way of giving the algorithm a way of, of arranging or sorting or you know sort of like a search signal, um, so that people could go and then find and have a similar conversation all about the same things. I started using the hashtag organically. And people were like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. And I was just like, I was in the jungle, you know? And I just kept going down that path. And then eventually people started to follow me. And then eventually, you know, not to exploit this metaphor too much, but sort of arrived at this beautiful beach that everyone else sort of, you know, decided that they wanted to come join. So they followed the path. And now hashtags are used everywhere. Um, But for a long time, I was in the wilderness, you know, and nobody really saw the relevance or use of this thing. And I guess like like my point being there is that was me marching to the the beat of my own drummer back to what we were talking about before and socializing what I was doing, you know, building in public, like tweeting, you know, with hashtags, trying to tell people what I was doing, why I was doing it. And for a long time, they're like, I just don't get it. I just doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, so it's like your friend with the, with the credit card points and Bitcoin. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I,
1: I think it's part. important not to be. I think it's important not to be completely reactive and responsive and just be like, oh, whatever the trend is, I'm going to follow that. Like, no, it has to be relevant to you. You have to be uniquely equipped to talk about it, and well, it has it come to from integrity, realized. right? As opposed yeah. to just like, there's, oh, there's some sort of authenticity. About this. Yes, yeah. yes.
0: I, I, exactly. That's the only way I think to really, if you're going to build a monopoly, it's got to come from source. It's got to come from something truly that motivates you, that you're excited about. And that you would keep doing even if no one was watching and no one was paying attention.
1: Yeah, amazing, Chris. I think that's such a great uh, place to wrap up the conversation. It just the hour totally I had so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, great. I, yeah, and and listeners, um, we again. I, I just want to say again. We're so thankful for Chris, uh, as as he just implied there. Uh, Chris, one of his uh, claim to fame is he invented the hashtag, uh, and is also the number one product on Hunter. So huge, just huge, and he's he's working on some really cool stuff. So Chris, how can our listeners in the audience uh, keep up with you on social media and you know work with you potentially in the future?
0: Yeah, so uh, I mean, Twitter is a great place to find me and follow all my craziness. Um, I'm also at chrismacina.me um, we're not going to talk about this now, but I just launched my own creator coin yesterday, which I'm still I'm learning in public, and I have no idea what this is, but uh, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, so those are the places where uh, I think people can can uh, check me out.
1: Amazing, yep. And and uh, everybody, we are live on Product Hunt. So if you're just dropping in, we have the post. Uh, we have our little link. Uh, Pin to the top of the chat if you can check us out, support us. It would mean the world. Uh, big shout out again to Chris for hunting us. But with that, Chris, thank you for coming. Uh, we I will talk to you soon. Awesome. Sounds good, uh, man. Okay. Good
0: luck. Good luck with the hunt. Ciao. <laughs> Appreciate it.
1: Hey Ish here. If you enjoyed that episode, Will and I would love for you to leave a review and a subscribe on your favorite podcast player. It's really helps get the word out. If you want to keep up when new episodes drop, head on over to reshapingeducationpodcast.com or give Will and I a follow on Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes. With that, this is Ish and Will signing off.